You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. In Ephesians chapter 3, uh, we've been focusing on verses 14 through 21 over the last couple of weeks, and uh, we're going to be back in uh, verse 17 again today. Uh, should be no surprise there, uh, just so you guys know. Um, but I want to go ahead and just, uh, I want to pause, I want to pray for us before we, uh, before we dive in. So let's do that. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for preserving your word um, all these years. I thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for giving your son at the cross for us. Lord, thank you for just this letter to the Ephesians. Thank you for all these themes that we see running throughout the book of Ephesians, these themes of just being seated in our identity and who we are because of the cross of Christ and the theme of walking in holiness as you've called us to walk and the theme of standing firm with our armor on. But I pray that you would just continue to use your word through Ephesians to change our hearts and our lives and Father, today I just pray specifically that you would speak to our hearts about what it means to be grounded in your love, what it means to be grounded like a a gigantic tall building in the love of Christ. Father, if there's areas in our hearts where we are, I don't know, just living in in some sort of like deception or lies when it comes to your love, Father, I pray that you would set us free this morning. Father, I pray that you would help our hearts to settle down and to hear from you. So I pray for a supernatural, um, just manifestation of your spirit, God, that you would strengthen us and empower us and fill us with your presence. God, we love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So September 11th, uh, 2001, uh, was a day that kind of rocked America to its core, right? Remember that day, September 11th? It was a terrifying day, to say the least. It was a day that caused many to question their security, caused many people to live in fear. It was a day that left its mark on anybody who was alive. On that day, four planes uh, were hijacked by terrorists and they were steered towards major American targets, right? Two of those planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City, destroying both of those 110-story buildings. That uh, they also destroyed a 47-story building next to it. It was a World Trade Center tower. Uh, those two planes also caused significant damage to 10 other buildings uh, in that area. And the third plane crashed into the Pentagon in Arlington County, Virginia. And then the fourth plane uh, that was originally headed towards Washington, D.C., crashed into a field in Pennsylvania after its passengers kind of like courageously confronted the terrorists, right? Um, The destruction of that day was astronomical. It's been estimated upwards of $10 billion in property damage was done that day. 2,996 people were killed. 6,000 people were injured. 343 firefighters lost their lives. 72 Law enforcement officers died. It's been described as the single deadliest terrorist attack 
on American soil. It's been, been said that it changed the landscape of life as we know it in America more than any other event in American history. I still remember exactly where I was that day. I was walking down uh, was P Street in Lincoln, the sheetrocker, and I was carrying my tools down the sidewalk into a bank where I was doing work in the basement. Hadn't listened to the radio yet that day. Walked around the corner, and the walls of the bank were made of glass, and it was full of people watching the planes crash into those towers. I mean, for most of us that were alive and old enough to remember, it's easy to remember exactly where you were. Country Western songs have been written about that even. I remember feeling afraid and helpless, right? Um, we're feeling really vulnerable. I remember how desperate my prayers were that day. I remember the tears that we cried together in that bank lobby. A bunch of strangers feeling the same things. I've often wondered how some of the biblical authors would have prayed that day, and I've thought maybe Paul would have prayed the prayer he prays in Ephesians 3, maybe. Look at it. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may Dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, to be fair, uh, Paul isn't praying this prayer in light of or against the backdrop of a national emergency such as the one that we experienced on September 11th of 2001, right? But he is praying from prison. He is praying against the backdrop of severe religious persecution in his day. He is praying for Christians in Ephesus who, who more than likely live each day with the same sense that we do at times, fear of insecurity, fear of not knowing what's going to come next. Some commentators notice that the Ephesian Christians were more than likely either A, very poor, at least, and B, living enslaved. Um, so the, that would be the culture that these Ephesian Christians were living in. Not many of them would have been affluent. Each day for the Ephesian Christians would have been a new set of troubling circumstances, right? Their news feeds, if they had news feeds like us, would have looked no different than ours. Their social media posts would have been just as discouraging at times. Same political war, same issues in schools, same issues in families. Now for us, we're nearly 17 years removed from the horror of 9-11, right? That seems like a long time. We're not enslaved to cruel masters like the Ephesians. 
Uh, we experience relative ease when it comes to uh, living out our faith here in America. Not as hard. Many other places of the world, it's very hard. Truth is, um, we still desire the same things. Right? Like, think about what you desire. Think about what you long for. The Ephesian believers would have desired security, safety, freedom, fulfillment, friendship. They would desire the same things. Like, like for us, uh, disease still ravages our bodies, right? We're going to get old, going to die. Still ravages the bodies of our loved ones. Our news feeds still churn out one horror story after the next. Just heard a story this last week of a shooter in another school again, which always means Facebook's going to blow up with every Christian on the face of the planet that thinks this is a great opportunity to argue their political stance about guns, right? That's exactly what Jesus is thinking about. Certain of it. Exactly what he wants us to do. Divorce rates, still an all-time high, broken families, still living in nearly every home on every block. Depression is still a very real mountain. Loneliness is still one of the leading causes for suicide. Addictions of all shapes and sizes, from workaholism to substance abuse, still leave their marks on our society. It doesn't matter where you live, right? Whether you live in the suburbs, whether you live in the inner city, you live in the country. Whether you, whether you live in affluence or you live in poverty, the world we live in is broken. I can, I can just tell you this. You tell I have a bone to pick. Our Facebook posts about politics isn't going to fix it. It's not. The world we live in is broken. The people you know are broken. The person next to you is broken. This might come as a shocker. You are broken. <laughs> A little sarcasm. How do you pray in the middle of all that brokenness? Do you pray in the middle of that brokenness? What do you pray for? Like sometimes for me, it just seems like I'm praying to survive. Anybody ever get there? Like, God, just help me get through this day, right? Some seasons, that seems to be the only way to pray. I got to thinking about this last week as I studied this passage and I became increasingly convicted that I need to pray through my desire to survive until I begin to thrive. What if we prayed that way? Instead of just praying to survive, what if we prayed through that desire to a place where we begin to thrive in God's presence? I'm not talking about becoming like healthy, wealthy, and wise. I'm not, I'm not going there. Let's talk about thriving in the presence of Christ. What would that look like? I just prayed that way. What if, uh, what if my human insecurity was replaced in prayer? What if my human insecurity became godly confidence? Wouldn't that be true biblical thriving? You know? What, what if I prayed through my human sadness? Anybody here struggle with sadness this last week besides me? Good. There's a few of us. That's awesome. Right? Like, what, what if in those moments when I'm struggling with my human sadness, what if I 
just prayed through that, like continued praying, staying, simmering, soaking in God's presence, just begging him to replace that human sadness with godly gladness. Like that seems biblical to me. That seems like thriving. What if I prayed through my human fear? May you ever feel fearful? Scared? What if I prayed through my human fear? In, in, instead of just praying about my human fear, what if I stuck in prayer and prayed through that fear into this place where I could actually tangibly feel God's nearness to me? What if I just stayed there? What if I just said like, like people in the Old Testament, like, God, I'm not moving here until, you, until your presence is with me. What, what if instead of my, like my human, like flyby prayers, right? Anybody ever see Top Gun in the flyby? Cause him to sp- spill the coffee on himself? What if, what if instead of those flyby prayers, like, meow, prayer done, I'm on something else. What if instead of those kinds of prayers, just prayer on the fly, not that that's wrong, we should pray that way as well, but what if we, what if we stopped, slowed down, landed the plane for a minute, longer than a minute? What, what, if I, what, if I, what if I sought God for revival instead of survival? Like, what if I just asked God, like, Father, would you please revive my heart? Don't just help me survive, God. Revive my heart. Revive my affections for you. Move my heart into a place where I desire you and find joy in your presence. Wouldn't that kind of thriving be so much better than just that prayer for surviving? I don't know exactly what Paul was asking in his mind as he's praying this, But in my imagination, I just imagine that these are the kinds of questions and the kinds of thoughts that might have filled Paul as he prayed, as he prayed against the backdrop of the suffering of humanity. This is part of what drove him to pray the way he did. When I see Paul in this prayer, he's kneeled, right? Can I just ask, when was the last time I kneeled down and prayed for an extended period of time until God just changed my heart, took me from a place of just asking him to give me what I want and move me to a place where he became the fulfillment of all that I want. Paul's kneeled out of desperation for other believers, right? The desperate kind of a prayer he's praying here. I hear him praying in light of his knowledge of our identity in Christ. It's a, it's a big, massive prayer. When the week we worked through that part, we, we looked back at all of what Paul had said about our identity. The challenge was pray through one piece of that identity every day for the next 17 days. See what might happen inside of you. I hear Paul asking the Lord for a manifestation of true spiritual power, not, not hype, not smoking lights, right? True presence. I mean, you think about if you've got kids, if you've ever worked with kids, what your presence does in the room when you walk in and all these kids are fighting, anxiety going through the roof, right? 
And your presence, when you come into the room, if, if you're no different than they are, then what happens? It gets worse, right? But if you walk into the room and you're in total control, you're in authority, you're peaceful, what happens? Dispels it, right? This is the presence of God in our lives. This is what it should look like. Where the anxiety of our hearts and our souls begins to settle down, where the waves and the winds of the storm calm, where the ship of our lives begins to just sail along, where the breath of the Holy Spirit is blowing into the sails of our ships, and we're moving along, carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what Paul's praying for, is that that kind of power would move us and motivate us and help us to walk forward. Here I'm asking the Lord to settle down in our hearts, right? Like clear out the clutter inside of our lives, our sin, our doubt, our worry, our shame, our guilt, all the things that clutter up that space. Just pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would create new hearts inside of us so that the Spirit of God would settle inside of us so that Christ would be settled down. Here I'm asking the Father, like we looked at last week, to root, root our hearts in Christ's love. Looking at the fruit of my life at times, fear, worry, doubt, anxiety, guilt, shame, some of that negative stuff gets stuck in the tree of my life. And my character gets so weak when I live there. Give in to sinful patterns that God didn't intend me to live in. Right? Looking at the soil where the roots are growing. I want to be rooted in the love of Christ. I want the soil to be there. Be nurturing my heart. And then finally, in, in verse 17, praise that, our lives would be built or established or founded or grounded like tall buildings in the love of Christ. Built, grounded, established, founded. Think about those words. They're construction type words is what they are, right? What does it mean? What does it look like to be grounded in the love of Christ? I'll be honest with you before we uh, move on. I have three points for us today. Um, I had six. <laughs> Here's the problem. I think the weight of preaching the topic of God's love was weightier than I expected it to be. Just as a personal confession. But even just in my life as a normal Christian outside the pulpit, how about that for a statement? <laughs> just, in my, just in my walk, like as a Christian, when I think about the love of Christ, I'm trying to explain something that's totally unexplainable. It's not unexplainable, but it's, we're not going to be able to explain it enough to where we have completion. So as I begin to like look up all the passages on love in the scriptures, just looking at supporting themes that could help us build out our theology of God's love, I was just overwhelmed with the amount of Scripture that's there. And here's the problem. I feel like, okay, I'll choose these three passages to teach today. But there's a vast number of passages in the Scripture about, like, we, we, could, we could just talk about God's love for the rest of our existence from the Bible and still never arrive 
That's, that's the picture. In fact, in fact, uh, before we go into those points, look back to Ephesians 3 in your Bibles. If you look at verse 18, which we're not going to get to for a long time, but we'll just move ahead there for a minute. I just want you to see what Paul says, and then later you'll hear me say it again whenever we preach this verse a year from now. Verse 18. Um, well, and I'll, start, I'll start in 17 so you get the whole context. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, the you being rooted and grounded in love. We're going to talk about being grounded in love, right? The you being rooted and grounded in life, love. Verse 18, may have strength to what? What's the word? Comprehend. Understand, maybe, right? Comprehend or understand. Cast is crazy. Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to what? Know the love of Christ that what? Surpasses what? Oh my gosh. So it, made, it struck me. I was telling my wife on the porch one day, I was just fretting over this, like, I don't know what to do, babe. And she's like, well, cut half the sermon out. Well, now that I did that, now I'm spending a bunch of time here. Anyways, thank you for your, uh, your counsel. The problem for me is like, Paul's like, hey, I want you to have the knowledge and the understanding of something that you cannot have full knowledge and understanding of. Just, I don't know if that blows anybody else's mind, but for me, it just means that, it means this. Like, I could spend a lot of time in prayer in God's presence, sensing his love, being rooted and grounded in his love, it's never going to run out. It's never going to run out. We've seen that song, Oceans, right? That's what that song's talking about. It's a vast, endless ocean when it comes to the topic of God's love. And here's the problem. Like, I'm standing in front of you, and I'm going to outline three points, and I'm going to get a bunch of things in your head, right, that can intellectually make a ton of sense. I, Glenn, you and I talk about this all the time, right? Uh, sorry, call you guys out, but, but we, we talk about this stuff. Like, what does it look like then for my life not to just be rooted in all this awesome head knowledge that I have because of all the books that are on my shelf and to just actually have my heart affected to the point that my, my, my affections and my desires, like I'm just falling deeply in love with Jesus. Well, what, is that, what does that really look like? I, I'm, I get to explain that to you. That's crazy. It's crazy. What does it look like? Let's try. What does it look like to be grounded in the love of Christ? And number one, if you're grounded in the love of Christ, you will build your life on the love of Christ. You will build your life on the love of Christ. Here's the thing. Like the word love is a funny word. A funny word. You have three conversations today about the word love, and you'll get different definitions and descriptions. It gets misunderstood often. Like, I think we often want to redefine the word love according, listen, according to what we want. Okay? I think that we often want to define the word love according to what we want rather than letting the true definition of God's love change what we want. I don't know if that's connecting with any of you, but it connected with me. I think I want my definition of love to flow out of my wants rather than the definition biblically of God's love to change my wants. I somehow I think that I can put myself in God's seat and define love in ways that he doesn't define it. And typically it's driven by my wants and my desires. Man, I want that brand new truck. I love it. 
right? And I don't feel lovable if I don't have it. Like, it's just, it's messed up, right? When I define the word love according to what I want, then my life gets built on pursuing what? The fulfillment of my desires. Then we, we raise our kids that way. Oh, oh, baby, you can have anything you want. No, no, you can't. Can't, right? It's common for us. With this kind of foundation, what happens for me is I wind up using people to fulfill my desire for acceptance, or I, I chase things to fulfill my desire for status, or I, or I pursue goals to fulfill my desire for achievement. I only love people if I, if I, if I do this. My, my definition of love is defined by all of my wants. I only love people, things, and goals for the way they make me feel. Here's what this is. This is a faulty foundation. It's a faulty foundation built on a faulty concept of love that's built on my broken desires. That's the hard part about studying this is that I come face to face with a mirror that shows me my imperfections, right? Like, holy cow, Joseph. (laughs) Following Jesus for longer than 15 minutes. Barely. You ought to have this down. That's my guilt language speaking, right? I don't don't have this down. Because if I did, where would I be? If I had, right. If I had that down, I wouldn't be standing in front of you. Man, I'd be in heaven. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. (laughs) So you might remember the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 46 through 49. He says, this is, why do you call me Lord, Lord? This is a, man, I tell you, like a passage that just like blows the doors off a building. Here's one. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Like, whoa, Jesus, thought you were all about love. See, in our culture, love is you get what you want, not do what you're told. Like that's really flies in the face of our cultural concept of what love is, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Now, everyone who comes to me and bears and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the only, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the steam broke, stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And what Jesus does here, man, is he just, just describes the contrast between a foolish person, right, builds his life on sand, and then a wise person over here who builds his life on the rock. It's, it's a simple story. Communicates timeless truth. The building of your life must be grounded or founded or built or established on something solid if it's going to Weather the storms of this life. Jesus basically says the proof that your life is built or established or founded, grounded on the rock of Christ is that you live a life of obedience to the words of Christ. Now, the words of Christ can be summed up in one word. What's that word? Hmm? Hmm? Love. 
Words of Christ can be summed up in one word, love. Christ said that all the commands of God hang like coats or clothing on a coat hook. The name of that coat hook is love. In other words, if you want to build your life on the rock of Christ's love, pay attention to his commands. Do what he says to do in his word. Because everything that Jesus says to do is going to get hung on the coat hook of love. That's a single command throughout all of Scripture. We're called to love Christ. He is the essence of love. He loved us before we could love him. We're called to love him with every ounce of our beings. Called to love our neighbors, especially our enemies. Called to love them the same way that God loves us, sacrificially and unconditionally. We're called to pursue goals based upon our love for God because he first loved us. So much could be said here, right? If you're grounded in the love of Christ, you'll build your life on the rock of the love of Christ, which is built on every word that comes out of the mouth of Christ, which is found in our Bibles. Number two, if you're grounded in the love of Christ, you will praise him for who he is and for what he's done. And the love of Christ always begins with who God is and what he's done. In other words, our actually living lives that love God begins with who he is and what he has done. Oftentimes, we want to start with you-know-who, um, myself. I, and you don't start with me, but you usually start with yourself too, so you know. <laughs> Typically, we want to start with ourselves. But truly loving God and truly experiencing God's love doesn't begin with you and me. It begins with God, who he is, and what he's done. I'm so easily tempted myself to refashion God into my own image, make him into a weak, unloving, angry, distant God. The God that's standing outside the grave of my sin saying, hey, get yourself out of there so I can save you. Hello. Right? Grow up. Pull your boots on. So thankful that's not the God of the Bible, right? The God of the Bible is the one who speaks into my grave, wakes me up and gives me a brand new heart and makes me walk. That's grace. That's love. David describes this well in Psalm 103. One of my favorite psalms of all times. One of my favorite bands, Disciple, has, has a song called 103 based on this psalm. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Love how David talks to his soul, preaches to himself, right? Not talking about himself, not moaning about himself, preaching to himself. Hey, soul, bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Says it again, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know how easy it is to forget the benefits of God's grace and Christ's love for us, the benefits of the cross, easy to forget that. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, your sin, right? Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who redeems my life from the pit? Not me. That's God's work. Absolutely not a single stinking thing that I can do to get my life out of that pit. Like that changes my affections. That changes God's presence in the room for me.
heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. What I do is I, I spend my life chasing after those crowns so I can get them myself, so I can get some ownership in it. And here's the thing. For all that work, you know what the paycheck is? Death. Death. God is the one who crowns us with love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Isn't that awesome that like your father in heaven does not walk into the room relating to you around your sin, right? He doesn't just come walking up, right? Set the chair down. Be like, hey, bro, why did you mess up again? See, that's, that's, not, God's, that's not God's presence in the room. It's not, it's not how he walks in. If you know that and if you believe that and if you trust that about God's love, well, how would that radically change your time in prayer with him then? Think about that. Because it doesn't relate to you through your sin. It relates to you through the cross of Christ. He's healed you from the effects of your sin. He's, he's pulled you out of the pit of your sin. He's, re, he's removed your filthy, sin-stained clothing. He's crowned you with his perfect love and mercy. He's given you what you do not deserve. That's, that's grace. He, he's withheld what you actually do deserve. That's, that's mercy. That's the kind of presence that the Father brings to the room when you come to him in prayer. God's not interested in giving you everything you ever wanted. That's just not his interest. God's not like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Right? He's interested in being the satisfaction for every desire you have. Following Jesus isn't about getting everything you ever wanted. Following Jesus is about him becoming the satisfaction for everything you ever wanted. That's, that's, that's what following Jesus is about. Loneliness, security. Strength, fear, acceptance, all those things are satisfied in the presence of Christ. How you get there, man, it's, 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 it's a supernatural work. Like only the Holy Spirit can make that happen inside of you. Only the Holy Spirit can put that desire in you. Only the Holy Spirit can paint that picture of the Father and then give you that presence of the Father. So what do you do if that's not you here? And you're like, man, I'm afraid of God. I'm bored with God. Man, stop and pray and ask the Father to change your heart because he can and he will. I say it all the time. He left the tomb empty so he can sure as heck give you a brand new heart. It's easy for him. He's done so much, man. He's placed his anger for all of your sin on the shoulders of Christ the cross. All of it. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, all your sin if you trusted in Christ, was placed on the back of Christ at the cross. You know what Jesus said on the cross? He said, it's finished. It is finished. Three words that should rock our worlds, right? What was finished has to be the question you've got to ask. What was finished? The atonement. 
the payment, the ransom for my sin. That doesn't make me want to go sin more. That doesn't create that kind of desire inside of me. If it did, you know what? I'm not a believer. I'm not a believer if that's what it creates inside of me. I haven't truly experienced the love of Christ in a saving way if that's what happens inside of me. What happens inside of a person who, who's grounded in the love of Christ is that they recognize that on the cross, it is finished long before I had the opportunity to ever mess anything up. That changes my affections and my desires. I want to love God now because he loved me that way. That's radical love. I'm so used to conditional love, aren't you? So used to it. conditional love. The picture of unconditional love in Christ is so big. It changes me. Everything that would separate you from his love. He, God, he, not you. He, not you, has removed from you as far as you can imagine. Imagine the distance between the east and the west and the heavens and the earth. That's a distance that you and I cannot measure. It's immeasurable. That's how far he's cast your sins away from you, which means that when you come into his presence, you're free to just be you. And Jesus looks at you and he says, you know what? I'm so happy to be with you. I'm so happy to be with you right here, right now, in the person that you are. I, just, I love you so much. That's what Jesus says. And your failure yesterday doesn't change your standing before God. Your sin today doesn't change his disposition towards you. And your sin tomorrow will not catch him by surprise. This is the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. And if you are grounded in the love of Christ, you will praise him for who he is and for what he has done. All I've done is try to describe to you in just a few short minutes who God is and what he has done for you in, in the cross of Christ. I'm praying that it would stir your affections for him. Number three, if you are grounded in the love of Christ, you will be secure in his presence. Now, our family takes a family vacation every year. We usually go do some camping, and we stay at a friend of mine's cabin out at uh, Harlan, and he's gracious to let me use his boat and jet skiing. It's, it's a blast. But longer story short, have you ever seen a guy pack a short bed Dodge pickup truck uh, to go camping uh, for seven kids and two adults? <laughs> Take a guess what that looks like, okay? That's my responsibility. Um, Christy always says it, too. Like, that's your business. <laughs> I'm out there for hours, like, packing stuff in the truck. Step back, I look at it. <laughs> Grab a drink. Look at it again. Unpack everything, start over again, right? And here's the key. Like, the key to packing the truck well so that it's actually secure is using the tie-down straps right getting them tight enough, getting them in the right places. If I don't, if that load isn't secure, then what happens is we're going down the highway, there's a big fat mess all over the place, right? Now you see us going down the highway, we look like the Clampett family, okay? <laughs> Mama in her rocking chair on top of the pile, haven't done that yet, we should try it, I think it'd be kind of fun. Shotgun in her hand, we could pull this off. Anyways, <laughs> if I don't get that thing loaded just right, tied down right, man, the load is insecure and it makes a big mess all 
over the road. And this is what happens in the life of a believer who is not secure in the love of Christ. Want to know why you keep going back to that same old pit of sin that you keep going back to? It's because you're not secure in Christ. Now, I say that, and it'd be like, thanks, pastor, right? Thanks for pointing out the obvious, like a big zit on my nose. I don't say that to, to, to shame or to guilt. I just say it just because confession is good. Like, you guys aren't the only ones that wrestle. I struggle with that every single day. I was laying in my bed the other night, struggling with fear. Like, God, tell my wife, confessing then, like, how, how am I going to lead? Like, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do with people. I don't know how to do this. And I'm just carrying on, and she's like, shut up. It's, what is it? I'm lacking security in Christ. That's all I'm doing in those moments. Jesus prays for this in John 17. John 17, 20 to 26, he prays. I do not ask for these. Now, here's the interesting thing about John. Um, John's use of language is, I think, worse than Paul's sometimes. So I'm just going to try to give you a couple of things on the way through. I do not ask for these. These who? The disciples. I do not pray for these, the disciples only, but also for those. Well, who are those? Every other believer who will believe in me through their word. Whose word? The, the word of the disciples. That they, who? who? Who's they? The disciples and every other believer may all be one. He's praying for unity between all believers now, then, forever, right? May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. It's a picture of unity. That they also, every believer, may be in us. So that the world, uh-oh, wait a minute. Who's he talking about when he says the world? Talking about the entire world? Let me just stop us for a minute. If he's talking about the entire world, then we believe in something called universalism where God saves everyone. We know that's not true. Read the scriptures. So when, Paul, when, when, when John uses this word world there, I think he's talking about all who will believe in Christ. Seems logical, right? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I mean, if the entire world believed that Christ was sent, the entire world would be saved. And the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world, every person who will believe, right, may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. That's an interesting phrase. Jesus confesses the Father is the one that gave believers to him. <coughs> so let me just ask you, like, was it you? And me? Or was it the Father that was given to Christ? I mean, how does that work? Did the Father give you and I to Christ? Or did you and I, by our own somehow crazy prayer at camp one summer, give ourselves to Christ? I'd, there's two train tracks here. I just think in this context, and the Father gave you as a gift to Christ, right? That's a great picture. And that helps my security. Because if I, if I walk around thinking that somehow I earned that or can't, then I can also unearn it, right? My prayer somewhere got me right with Jesus, then some sin, I don't know which one it is, and, and every theologian would be different. I don't know which sin it is that causes, like, the Holy Spirit to erase my name from the book. Not saved anymore. Oh, wait, he did good. I'm going to write your name back in the book. Yeah, that's, that's really secure. All right? Like, I'm not, I'm not just trying to pick on some theological underpinnings because I'm a Calvinist, right? I'm, I'm just simply saying, 
we can either live in security or we can live in insecurity. I like the idea of security. Um, I just think God, God is secure. There's enough things to be in, insecure about in this life. And if my salvation is contingent upon me, somebody's going to have to help me understand at which point and what level I start losing all that and get rewritten back in the book. I like security, and I think God's a secure God. That's my point. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Interesting phrase. John uses that. Guess who else uses that? You may remember? Paul in Ephesians. That you and I, as believers, were loved before the very foundations of the world. John uses the same language. O righteous Father, even though the world, those who don't believe in God, that's where I think he's using world in a different sense, right? So see, context is everything when it comes to words. What is the meaning of is, right? Well, it depends on where it's at in the sentence. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> you, yeah, it is bad. It's horrible. All right. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world, those who don't believe in God, does not know you, right? Agreed? Context. Talk about those who don't know him. I know you, and these, who? The disciples, they know you. They know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he's tying the presence of Christ himself, right? The love of Christ. If you're grounded in the love of Christ, you will be secure in his presence. And just wrap this thing up. If you want to bring down a really big, tall building, what do you do? You look for the weakest point, right? It's not original with me. I have a really awesome wife who is happy to dialogue about these things with me and made that statement. And I was like, dang, dang, that's, that's good. That's the whole sermon. Done. If you want to bring down a big, tall building, find the weakest point in the building, right? Find the weakest point in the foundation, I go back to last week when, when it comes to being rooted in God's love. Every tree that grows tall and wide must have roots underneath of it supporting that height and that width. And those roots must be proportionate to the height and the width. They must be about as deep at least. In fact, Bryce, what do we find? Seven times? Up to seven times as deep the roots need to be to support a tree. And at least as wide. So now... The same is true with a building. Every building must be grounded on a foundation that is proportionate in strength to its height and its width. And if the building of your life is not grounded, founded, established, built on the love of Christ, then what's going to happen? Your life will crumble when the storms of life come your way. Paul prays our hearts to be grounded in the love of Christ. So the question I think for all of us, leave you with one last question. What part of that foundation inside of you needs the most work right now? Where do you need to ask the Holy Spirit to come in like a great construction worker and do some good work on the foundation of your heart when it comes to Christ's love? Ask these kinds of questions. How would you define God's love to a stranger right now? How do you, how do you define God's love to your own soul when life is hard? And if, if your definition of God's love is based on what you want, then my encouragement would be, man, ask God to change that inside of you. 
is your definition of God's love being transformed? And are your wants being transformed by a true biblical definition of God's love? And if so, like just quantify that. How, what does that look like? Spend some time there. Are you grounded in love of Christ? Does the love of Christ drive your prayer and your praise? What do your day-to-day rhythms of prayer and praise look like? Do you, do you find it difficult to feel secure in the presence of God? What does God's presence feel like to you? Are you fearful of God, bored with God, anxious in God's presence, insecure in God's presence, maybe restless around God? If any of those are true or any other negative ways of explaining it, what does that tell you about what you actually believe about God? Ask him to change that. He will. Here's the thing. God paid the highest purchase price for you. It's what we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes when we celebrate communion. We celebrate the fact that God paid the highest purchase price for you. He didn't think twice about it. He planned this before the foundations of the world. He did it because he loves you. He didn't skimp on the price of your sin. He didn't negotiate a better price for you. When he spent the blood of his son Jesus on you, he got exactly what he wanted. Now you might be sitting here and you might think that you're not worth much, but the cross of Christ says that you are worth infinitely more than you could ever imagine. Both God's love for you and your worth, I think, are two topics when it comes to his identity flowing into your identity, the two topics that you and I could just sit in the rest of our lives. It's vast. Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. If you're grounded in the love of Christ, your life will be built on the rock of Christ's love. You'll praise him. You'll be secure in his presence. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your deep, enduring love for us. Pray, God, that uh, you would root our hearts and ground our hearts in your love, that you would transform our desires by a picture of your son at the cross, giving himself on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.